And if you'll turn to Ephesians 4, Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians 4, and hopefully we'll have time to look at some passages in Ephesians 4 beginning in verse 25. But I'll have you turn there in case, but I've got a bunch of other stuff to say prior to that. Our series, War of Words, Getting to the Heart of Your Communication Struggles, has looked at the fact that the ability to communicate is a gift given to us by God for His purposes. Now, that's that's a mouthful because it has a number of very important implications to it then. It's a gift from God. And because it's a gift from God, then, we are accountable to God for how we use the gift. So, it has moral implications to it. How I communicate and the quality of my communication matters to God. God gave it, and God gave it for specific purposes. He gave it for us to be able to praise Him, obviously. But also for us to be able to receive His communication to us and also give that revelation to others, our children and to others. And so God gave us the ability to both give communication and receive communication, to be worshipers, to praise Him with our, with our mouths, but also to receive His instructions for ourselves and to communicate those instructions to, to others. So whether we use this gift that God has given matters to God. It has moral implications to it. It is purposeful. And that's why then Jesus would say things like in Matthew chapter 12, verses 34 to 36, Jesus could say that you will be judged, each of us will be judged by every careless word that is spoken. So it's a God thing when we talk before it's first a man or woman thing. It matters to God. And Jesus therefore said, out of the overflow of the heart it is that the mouth speaks. What we say is coming out of our hearts. And if our hearts then are not reflecting God's intentions, our words will not reflect those intentions. We sin in the way we talk because we have hearts that are not attuned to God and His purposes. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so because it is a matter of God's gift, we are accountable to God for how we use that gift. And because it's a matter of the heart then, our relationship with God from our hearts is going to affect how we speak or whether we speak to others. And so we have seen together that because it is a purposeful gift given to us by God for achieving His purposes, we need to do four things. Take our words as seriously as God takes them. Take this issue of communication as seriously as God does. Secondly, take responsibility for how we speak. We don't just say it just slipped out because it slipped out of our hearts and we are accountable for what is in our hearts and how we cultivate our hearts. And so we have to take it as seriously as God does. He takes it really seriously, I think, as we've seen. Take responsibility for how we use our words. Thirdly, see communication as essential to loving someone else. The truth is you can't love someone properly unless you communicate with them properly. You're willing to listen to them, to get to know them, to get to know how you can love them better. You speak to them in a way that builds them up, the Bible commands. 
communicating is essential to loving someone. And then fourthly, we need to teach this and model this before our children. And that involves a number of habits that we need to instill in our children very early on. Our children need to learn to speak. And that means, I believe, wisdom dictates that you limit the amount of time that they are just messing with gadgets and not interacting with real life flesh and blood human beings. And the more you get your kid accustomed to isolating his or herself in their own little enclave in the house with their own TV and their own cell phone that they text on all the time, the less they are going to learn to communicate and to see this issue of communication as essential to loving other people. It's all about me and communicating how I want to communicate, not having to mess with looking at you in the mug and interacting with you in flesh and blood. And all too often, you've heard me say, we give our children the very tools that help them become what we dread, what we fear. So the best thing you can do is early on see that danger. There's nothing evil about any of those tools, computer, cell phone, TV. The evil is in how we use it. And we've got to monitor the way our children use it because this gift of communication is from God. He expects it to use us, us to use it for his ends. Because it involves the heart, then, it involves God. An ungodly speech indicates an ungodly heart. Ungodly speech indicates an ungodly heart. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, when I say ungodly, ungodly speech indicates an ungodly heart. Now, when you use that word ungodly, I mean, that's just one of those big ones that's just, somebody does something that's downright ungodly. You know, I sin, you sin, but... We don't often do stuff that's downright ungodly. Well, we do, if you understand what ungodly means. It simply means ungodlike. We say ungodly. When I say ungodly speech comes from an ungodly heart, I mean when we speak in ways that are not consistent with God's character and purposes, it's coming out of a heart that is not attuned to God's character and God's purposes. Ungodly. Ungodly speech comes from an ungodly heart. I'm not acting like God. I'm not valuing God in my heart as I ought, and it comes out then in my speech. Because it's a heart matter, ungodly speech is a matter of an ungodly heart. And that means, as I said last week, it's first vertical before it's horizontal. Everybody remember that? And some people were hassling me on the way out saying, you know, I needed a diagram, vertical, horizontal. All right? Just stay awake for a minute. Vertical means this. Horizontal means this. Okay? Vertical means us to God, God to us. Horizontal means us to us. Okay? That's all I mean. So it's a God thing before it's a man thing. And you've sinned in your heart long before the words ever come out and you sin against another person. And that's why, you know, the advice that says bite your tongue, <clears throat> you don't find that in the Bible. Bite your tongue. Because it's still in your heart. The mere fact that it didn't come out and harm somebody else, it has still strained your relationship with God. It is first vertical before it's horizontal. And an ungodly heart, then, a heart that is not attuned to God and His purposes, strains our relationship with God and it breaks our relationship with others. And in Genesis chapter 3, you see that very pattern. 
When Adam and Eve committed that first sin, it strained, it broke their relationship with God. But it also affected their relationship with each other. First, because they were hiding from God, they began to hurl at each other. And that's now what we do living in a fallen world. We hide and we hurl. We hide from God. We hide from each other. We hide long enough from each other. We will eventually, most often, hurl at each other. Hiding, rather than communicating, is sin. It's a sin of omission, but sin nonetheless. What's a sin of omission? It's failing to do what I've been instructed to do. God gave me this gift to use for his purposes. When I refuse to use it for his purposes, when I simply say, I just don't want to talk about it. And so then I go and do my favorite hobby, or I run out of the house, and I just withdraw myself from the people that God has placed in my circle of influence to use this good gift of communication in their lives to achieve God's purposes in their lives, when I fail to do that, I am sinning by omission. To him that knows to do good and doesn't do it, to him it is sin, James 4.17. So we hide, and when we hide, we sin. And what we hide ferments. And what we hide usually comes out in one form or another. It'll either come out in a bombastic blow-up eventually, or it'll be someone who continues to isolate his or herself in brooding over and over again. And you know both types of people, don't you? People who just brood over their lives and what's not going the way they think it should go and what people should have done that they didn't do and how upset they are at their boss or at their spouse or at their kids or at their job or whatever it is. They brood most often at some point. That brooding, that fermentation will come out in the form of blowing up. The more we hide, the less we share. The more we hide, the less we allow in. And when we hide, we usually hurl either verbally or nonverbally. Clamming up. Withdrawing into ourselves can be a means of hurling at other people. Seeking to hurt and blame other people for what I perceive did not go right for me. So we're going to hurl in one way or another. Clamming up or most often eventually blowing up. And so let me deal with that form of hurling a bit. Adam and Eve hid and then they hurled verbal accusations. But I'm making the case that this hurling at other people can take the, silent, the form of the silent treatment, of sulking. Isn't that the way some people do it? Just withdraw and sulk. I've known people that, whose lives are one long, perpetual sulk. And part of the reason is, is because they didn't get what they wanted somewhere along the way. I'm dead serious. Stay with me here. Somewhere along the way, somebody tripped up their plan for themselves. It didn't turn out the way it was supposed to. And they've been sulking ever since. 
So you got the gal who, in her mind, married the wrong guy. You guys looked at each other when I said that. I thought you were going to give a personal testimony. Do you think about that? I married the wrong guy. But I can't get out of it. That doesn't mean I have to be happy about it. And so I can, my life can be one long, perpetual sulk. Now I want to beat on that a bit. Because you can fill in the blank of whatever it is. My career didn't turn out the way it was supposed to. I had somebody, what an encouraging note, I had somebody write me last Sunday afternoon and say, thanks for the lesson in this hour last week because that individual realized that they had been sulking about their career turns and lack of career turns and things not going the way they should for a long time. And by God's grace, they want to nip that before it grows. And I bring it up just to say, you can fill in the blank about what you can sulk about, how you can hide by the silent treatment, by sulking. Because someone or something did not turn out the way I want. It can be my job, it can be my spouse, one long sulk. Now why does that happen? Here's why. Those that are in our Monday night class, we went through this last Monday, so those handful of you that are in here, sorry about the repetition, but it's a very important concept. Those things that we hurl about, either verbally or by withdrawing and sulking, all have the same pattern to them, and it goes like this. It has six steps to it. Here they are. I want, that's how it starts. I want something. I want a spouse like this. And you've got in your mind what the spouse is supposed to be like. And that's what you want. That's what you desire. And you end up marrying this particular person and you thought that that person was that model. But then as usually is the case, by the way, when two sinners say, I do, in your first six months you realize there are more defects here than I realized. You know, when we were dating, he, she was not like this. Well, go figure. Since they're trying to nab you, it's usually an artificial deal. That's what dating is. It's artificial. People are always looking good. They're always going, you're going out to nice places together. And then you get married. And you have morning breath. And you've got all the other stuff that goes with now being with somebody 24-7. And so it didn't turn out, what, for whatever the reasons, it's not the way I want it. It starts with I want. And it might be that I want something that is good. But as we're going to see in a bit, you just want it too much. It starts with I want. But then in our minds it goes to I need. This is not just a wish. This is something I need to have in order for me to function properly. We convince ourselves. We rationalize. I need this. 
And you've got plenty of people out there, particularly in secular psychology, who have deified the notion of need. They have made need a god. And so we all have our needs, they say. They even have a whole chart, Maslow's Hierarchy of of Needs. And if you don't know what that is, just Google it sometime. Maslow's Hierarchy. You'll see it. And here are the needs that everybody must have in order for them to really function the way they're supposed to function. I need these things goes to the third level. I want, I need, I must. I mean, if this is an essential need, then I must have it. And then here's where it takes the really tricky step. Between steps three and four, it goes from I must to you should. And notice the pronoun shift. It goes from what I want and I need and I must have to now what you, you should do. Ah, I pulled you into the scenario. This is a need that I I must have. You should meet that need then. You've been placed here to meet that need. But because we deified this thing and we have made a person or thing into something God never intended, the truth of the matter is that person or thing will never satisfy. And they will not meet our needs. Which brings you to the fifth step. You should, inevitably, you didn't. And because you didn't, it's the sixth and final stage the stage that many couples, many people are living in, day in and day out, one long perpetual sulk. You'll pay. And you'll pay in the form of me sulking. I won't gladly interact with you and give myself to you and build you up through this gift of communication and relationship that God has given for his purposes, uh uh-uh, I'm withholding that from you. I'm going to isolate myself. And this is my way of making you pay for not having met my legitimate, even God-given needs. I'll get through it. But it's not going to be joyful for anybody around here. You need to know that you blew it. You'll pay. I want, I need, I must. You should, you didn't. You'll pay. Let me take it a step further. If you make incremental steps to try to improve, don't bother. Because you need to, you got to understand, here's what I must have. I must have the thing that I wanted in the beginning at step one. And your your stupid little incremental step doesn't mean anything until I have what I wanted at the beginning. To put it another way, when you arrive where you were supposed to be when when we got married, let me know. Then we can talk about really having a relationship. Until then, you'll pay, and I'll sulk. I don't always sulk, though. I just sulk to you. 
and I just sulk enough for other people to know I ain't happy, forgive the grammar. And what that does is it generates questions, which I'm happy to get from people who say, is everything okay? Are you all right? And then every now and then you'll open up. You'll open up to your friend about what a crumb your husband is. And in so doing, you've gone from sinning by sulking to sinning by slandering. You know what slander means? To talk down. That's what the word means, to talk down. And so in talking about someone else, I, to someone else, I talk them down. I gossip about them and I slander them. Now, I'm here to tell you that the pattern I just laid out goes on all the time. And you know where it started? I want. You didn't. You'll pay. And now we've got a lifetime of pain and sulking and slandering. What's the, what's the antidote to that? It all sounds pretty bad, doesn't it? And, you know, I'm using spouses because that's, you know, very common, very popular. But it could be my boss. It could be my career. It could be my health. You fill in the blank. Someone or something didn't go the way I wanted. And now I sin by refusing to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. So what's the antidote to that? Well, here's the first thing. Recognize that it all started with I want. And the thing or person that I wanted may have been fine in itself. But it has become an idol to you. So much so that you're willing to sin now. Because you don't have it. The problem was not wanting it. It was wanting it too much. Wanting it so much that now... I will not be satisfied until I have it. And in so doing, that person or that thing has replaced in your heart the priority that belongs always and only to God. It or they have become an idol to you. The first step is to repent before God. James chapter 4 says, turn, repent of this very process that I've laid out. Repent of allowing anyone or anything outside of God to become so important to you that your life becomes an unending cycle of sin before God. Sin of omission, refusing to use the gift of communication for the purpose for which He gave it. Sin of joylessness, because it hasn't turned out the way you want. Confess that and repent of that before God, Almighty God. We're going to pray before we leave today and give you opportunity to do that. Do you guys get the impression this is really important to me? And it should be important to all of us. I see it over and over again. And I see so many otherwise good people not, not being what 
our God intended them to be because of this process. The antidote, the answer, is confess this and repent of it as sin before God. And then you've got people you've sinned against. I mean, there's God first that you've sinned against. Vertical before it's horizontal. Everybody good? That's my blessing to you. It's vertical before it's horizontal. You're supposed to bless with your right hand, aren't you? I don't know. That was the left hand of blessing. It's vertical before it's horizontal, and so you, you have to confess to God, ask God's forgiveness. Now you've got to go to people. This sulking has affected other people, you know. You've got to go to those people and you say, I've allowed some things to become idols in my heart, and here is how they have manifest themselves in sins of commission, perhaps things I've said and done, or sins of omission, things I've just refused to do. Because I'm not going to be joyful until I get what I want. And you have to go to those people, but God has a marvelous answer to these broken relationships. You go, you confess, you ask forgiveness. And will you help me, husband or wife, co-worker, daughter, son, I ask you to forgive me. Will you pray for me and with me? And by God's grace, we're going to get a handle on this. I want God to be first and foremost in my heart, and I want that to express itself in the way I interact with you. Will you pray with me about this? That's what God says to do. And we forgive. And we reconcile. I'm going to move on, but how great would it be if you had a bunch of people in God's church who were willing to take that on, be honest about what's been going on in their hearts and coming out in their relationships, do what God says to do before Him and with others and to see relationships reconciled like that. I can't tell you how my heart yearns to see that happen. But it begins with you dealing with your heart. told you to turn to Ephesians 4, or I asked you to return, turn to Ephesians 4. In our final 15 minutes, I want to give you four rules of communication from Ephesians 4. Four rules of communication, and then we'll bow before the Lord, pray together, and do business with God. Ephesians 4. The first rule is this from verse 25, and that is be honest in our communication. Each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. The assumption in verse 25, as is throughout the letters of your New Testament written to churches, the assumption is this, is that you're in relationship with other people. That's the, that's the underlying assumption. And that's why it says each of you and your neighbor. The assumption is you're not isolated. If you're not isolated, then you don't, none of this applies. If you're isolated, none of this applies to you. If you're isolated and you don't have active relationships going on in the body of Christ with other brothers and sisters, then you don't have to worry about this stuff, right? 
But the assumption is you do have those active relationships going on within the body of Christ. Sixty times in your New Testament, a lay loan, one another. The assumption is that the body is just that, and it has members that function together. If you're in the habit of isolating yourself from the body, you are sinning against what God has said in his word. There are times to be alone and get your thoughts together. There's no doubt about that. I need that, you need that. There are times to do that. Those are limited, limited temporary times for me to get my head together so I can get back in the game and the game is played on the field with the other team members. The assumption in verse 25 is that you have relationships. Each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor because you are all members of one body. This is not just overt lying. That's obvious. A contrary to fact statement, you can't do that. You can't, thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not bear false witness. So you can't make a contrary to fact statement. I went here when in fact I went there. That would be a lie. We're all clear you can't do that, right? But it's not just that. It's, it's, it's deception that's not even spoken. It's implication, implying things about someone that you haven't overtly said about them. Leading others to believe falsely about them. It involves saying things, drawing conclusions where you don't know the facts. Drawing conclusions where you don't know the facts. Oh, I know why he did that. No, you don't. Do you know that you don't have the ability to know people's motives? You don't. I don't either. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we don't have time, but 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, I can't tell my own motives, let alone somebody else's motives. The Lord's going to have to bring to light on the day of judgment, the motives of people's hearts, I can't do that. You can't either. But we often draw false conclusions and perhaps even communicate those false conclusions based upon our own erroneous belief that we can know folks' motivations. And so I imply or I say things that are false about somebody without the facts. I was with, lest you think this only happens to those in the... The chair, I was going to say the pew. I was with a couple of pastor friends recently. And one of the guys was just talking about some things that had happened in ministry years ago and making some observations about it and so on. And then started to draw conclusions off of that. And that was a leap. Here's why that happened. And this brother started telling me why that happened. Well, now what am I supposed to do? And I ask you just to think about, what am I supposed to do? If I'm going to stand before my congregation and I'm going to preach, be honest, which includes not just overt lying, but also not implying or concluding things without the facts, and if I'm going to practice that in my life and I'm in the company of somebody who is doing that, then what am I supposed to do? And so I said, you can't do that. 
You don't know that. And we explored that for about an hour. You don't know that that's why that happened. And then I went this step further. I said, have you ever told anybody that you think that's why that happened? And what do you think the answer is? If they're telling me, chances are they told somebody else, right? And you know what you've got to do? You've got to go to those people you told that and you seek forgiveness for slandering somebody, speaking dishonestly about somebody without knowing the facts. And so, be truthful. Be honest is the first, first rule. Verse 25. Keep current is the second rule of communication. Keep current. Verses 26 and 27. In your anger, do not sin. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Now, here's what's being said there. You notice that in verse 26, when it says, In your anger, do not sin. And do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. That in your anger do not sin is in quotation marks. Everybody see that? When you see things in quotation marks, it's because it's quoting something. It's quoting Psalm 4. And here's what's important about Psalm 4. Psalm 4 is what is called a nighttime, a bedtime psalm. So it's a psalm that Israelites would read before they went to bed. And this phrase... In your anger, do not sin, was contained in the nighttime psalm. And the idea was that whatever you're angry about or at whomever you are angry, get it right with them before you go to bed. And that's why Paul adds then to the quotation in verse 26. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Keep current. This whole notion of bottling up and then later blowing up the antidote to that is don't bottle it up. And Almighty God gives a command to do that. Deal with it and deal with it daily. Do not go to bed with unreconciled issues with anyone. Now, if you go to bed at midnight and you're really ticked at your boss, let it wait until tomorrow because he'll be more ticked at you if you call him at midnight. But make it a practice in your home. We don't go to bed with unresolved issues. And it's a command of God, isn't it? I'm not making it up. Don't go to bed while you're angry. Don't let the sun go down while you're angry. God says that. You reconcile it before you go to bed. Now, think about the person I described earlier. The person whose life is one long, angry salt. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, going to bed with grievances against other people. You should have. You didn't. We have one other thing, and we'll move on to the other two rules. Who is he or she ultimately angry at? It's not just the individual. They're ultimately angry at God. You've got Christian people who are going to bed angry at God because it didn't turn out the way I want it. Keep current. Be honest. Keep current. Here's the third rule. 
Attack the problem and not the person. Attack the problem, not the person. Verse 29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. I mean, that one rule right there would transform our speech, wouldn't it? See, when I'm using communication as a tool of love in the life of another person, and remember what love is, doing what's in the best interests of another. So I'm using my words, I'm using my communication to do what's in your best interest, not necessarily my best interest, your best interest. Now I'm going to choose my words in a way that build you up, that help you move in the direction that God intends for you, I'm being used as a vehicle to that end. Rather than, if instead of my words being used as a medium of love in your life, rather they're being used as a tool to support my idol, I want this, you're not giving it to me, now I'm not going to come to you with those wholesome words that minister grace to the hearer. Now I'm going to talk to you in a way that blasts at you because you didn't do what who needs. Why? To put it another way, it's when it's about me and it's not about and not about you, I can't do verse twenty nine. I will not speak consistently in a wholesome way to you when it's about me. But when it's about you, when I'm loving you and using my words as a tool to love you. Now, I'm going to do them to build you up, not tear you down. Only what is for the building up of others. Think about how many words that would eliminate from your regular routine and my regular routine. If we only spoke that which was for the building up of others. We'll look at the fourth one and we'll be done in just a minute. But while we're hacking off major parts of our conversation... I mean, if I only do stuff that's to build up others, half of the stuff, three-quarters of the stuff, 90% of the stuff we say goes out the window. Here's another one for you. Philippians 2.14. Philippians 2.14 says this. Do everything without complaining. What? I'm an American. My God-given right to complain. Do everything without complaining. I mean, it's just a straight-out command. How many things? The really important things? Every last thing. Do without complaining. Well, there went the other, you know, the ten, now you only had 10% of your conversation left. There's, you got about 2%. After you get rid of the unwholesome stuff and the complaining and the arguing stuff. And the last rule of communication is this. Act, don't react. Verses 31 and 32. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. 
And so in order to get rid of the forms of communication that I have been practicing, this whole chapter of chapter 4 talks about putting off and putting on or what some call the replacement principle. It's not just stop doing this, it's start doing some other things. Be proactive in your speech, using kind and compassionate words, and coming with a heart that's even willing to forgive those who have wronged you. And now you proactively put that on, now it becomes automatic that you put off the things that are inconsistent with a heart like that. If you'll practice those four rules of communication going forward, knowing that what comes out was first in the heart, that what we do horizontally is first a vertical matter with God. Be honest, keep current, attack the problem and not the person, and act, don't react. God will be honored in our communication. We're going to bow before him and finish. As we do, we've had several weeks together looking at this important and convicting issue. I pray that we'll do business with God in these few moments. Let's bow before God, and let's do business with him, asking him to forgive where necessary the way we have used this good gift that he has given of communication. Let's go to the Lord. Father, we come before you with hearts that are convicted. My heart is convicted. As I'm reminded that you have given this good gift of being able to speak and being able to receive communication. You gave it. You made us this way. Adam and Eve had it from moment one. Our children are able to do it naturally because it is innate within us. It is part of the image of God within us. It's your gift to us. And Lord, you give your gifts for us to use for your purposes. And yet, like everything we do in a distorted, fallen, sinful world, we have taken your good gift and we have misappropriated it for our own ends. And in so doing, we sin. And so I use this gift of communication to attack. I use this gift of communication to imply and to, and to slander. Or I withhold this gift of communication by hiding and sulking in my anger at others, at my circumstances, ultimately at you. In all of this, Lord God, we have sinned. We ask you, Lord, forgive us of this sin. Help us to see it as important as you do. It's, it's, it's a matter of relationship with you before it ever affects our relationship with others. And help us, Lord, to go forward now having reconciled with you. Help us, Lord, to cultivate hearts toward you that will issue forth words that are building up, that are loving, that are Christ-honoring. Help us to cultivate hearts, Lord, that look to the interests of others before we look to our own interests and thereby truly love them, doing what's in the best interest of another, not using this gift of communication for my own ends and to get what I want to get the idol that I've created in my heart help us Lord going forward to do that in our homes with our children with our spouses with our co-workers with our brothers and sisters in the body here Lord I pray that where there have been broken relationships because there first been strained relationships with you I pray that folks will come from this place this afternoon not letting the sun go down while they're angry that they'll reconcile with one another, 
perhaps saying things to each other that they've never had the courage, the willingness to say. I've been angry. I've been sinning. I've been withdrawing myself. I've been hiding from you. And in so doing, I have sinned against Almighty God and against you. I ask you to forgive me. Lord, may that happen in relationships this very day for your honor and glory. If it needs to happen in other relationships this week, oh Lord, may your spirit motivate us to do that. And thereby, may we honor you, Lord, not just in what we do, but in what we say. Not in just what we say, but in what we have failed to say. And may Jesus be first and foremost in our lives, first in our hearts, on our tongues, and in our behavior. Go with us this week as we seek to serve you. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.